Coming up on episode 188 of Wheel Bearings, we're driving the 2021 Honda Odyssey Elite and 2021 Ford F350 Lariat with 6.7 liter Power Stroke diesel. We talk about Sabine Schmitz, Volkswagen Power Day, and Jeep's Easter Safari concepts. On top of all that, Rebecca calls in from the road with more big wheel bearings news. That's all ahead on episode 188 of Wheel Bearings. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you know you can support Wheelbearings directly? Head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia and you can become a patron today. Your contributions will help fund the platforms and tools we use to bring the podcast to you. And exclusives and improvements are already on the way thanks to your generosity. So if you want to be part of an automotive podcast like no other, head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. And I'm Sam Abual Samad from Guidehouse Insights. And later on in the show, we'll have Rebecca from wherever Rebecca is. <laughs> from a secret undisclosed location <laughs> somewhere that's not here. Yeah, an above ground bunker that Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. And actually she won't be alone either, so that's good too. Yes. Ooh a tease. Uh yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about what we're driving. I'm assuming, Sam, you found uses for the 2021 Honda Odyssey Elite. I had this just a couple of weeks ago. Did you like f- take trips, go to Ikea, anything? Uh, I didn't make any trips to Ikea. Uh, I did uh, go over to uh, my daughter's apartment with some tools and other stuff to help her out with something. <clears throat> and uh, you know, I mean, for, for this particular task, uh, the Odyssey was... Perhaps a little bit of overkill. Could have managed it with uh, with our Civic, or actually almost well, not quite with the Miata, but um, <laughs> with a trailer with the Miata, right? It's absolutely yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I had the Odyssey Elite, uh, which is you know the the latest and greatest version. It's you know, got the two hundred and eighty horsepower, three point five liter uh, V six. Um, this one was uh, clearly. Uh, Built earlier in the 2021 model year, probably sometime last summer uh, or early fall, uh, before 
uh, Honda lost one of their suppliers for this vehicle because the the Elite um, and I think a couple of other trim levels are available with uh, a really cool feature, which is the uh, the Honda Vac, uh, in the which is a, a vacuum cleaner built into the back uh, in the the left rear corner of the cargo area, uh, and you know if you've ever had children. And if you have transported children in your motor vehicle, uh, you would definitely understand the appeal of having a built-in vacuum cleaner, particularly a shop vac, uh, it built you know right in the vehicle. Because yeah. especially with youngsters, uh, you know there are always scraps of stuff, crumbs and stray French fries, whatever else. Yeah. You know, not having to lug a vacuum cleaner out, plug it in at try to uh, you know find all those things and and scoop them up before the uh, rodents and vermin get to them or you know nasty smells occur is very handy unfortunately uh, you know I mentioned shop vac in there unfortunately during the course of 2020 uh, the pandemic shop vac actually declared bankruptcy and stopped production of all of their products and so Honda announced a few months ago that they were discontinuing that option simply because they couldn't get the shop backs. They are actually working on getting another supplier for that bankruptcy. You know, this was a chapter 11 bankruptcy for shop back, uh, not chapter seven. You know, they are going through a reorganization. They may end up, you know, restarting production at some point, whether or not they do restart production of these vacuums for Honda remains to be seen. But um, if you are interested in a minivan uh, with a built-in vacuum, yeah, you know, there are there are no almost certainly uh, some odysseys still out in inventory in uh, dealers' lots around the country. So I would definitely recommend if you're looking for a, a van that you look for one of those. I, I thought the um, Pacifica now has a vacuum in it as well. Uh, one of they're one of the competitors. Maybe the Sienna. Sienna is brand new. Yeah, I think somebody else is offering a vacuum. As well, and you know, it's a good cleaning tool. And with kids, it's a great threat when they hit that age and they start to bicker. It's like, listen, I will suck the last breath out of your lungs with that vacuum <laughs> if you do not stop. <laughs> yeah, that's that. I hadn't thought about that. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to go down that dark path. But, you know, we have a little edge out here. <laughs> yeah, but aside from the vacuum cleaner, you know, the the rest of the Odyssey is fairly conventional. You know, you've got currently we still have four, three and a half kind of main competitors in the minivan space. We've got the Pacifica from Chrysler, the the brand new Toyota Sienna that just launched. Both of those, interestingly, are available with electrified powertrains. You've got a plug-in hybrid in the Pacifica. You've got uh, a standard hybrid powertrain, non-plug-in, uh, in the Odyssey. Sorry, the Sienna. Uh, and then there's also the Kia Carnival, which is the replacement for the Sedona, which is going sort of slightly more crossoverish, uh, but there's no there's no hybrid powertrain in that one either, um, and that's that's a relatively low volume player in this market compared to the other three. So the Odyssey is kind of the last one that is sticking at least for now with just a traditional gasoline powertrain. The current Odyssey uh, it just got a, a refresh for the 2021 model year. It's probably got another two years, you know, two model years to go before it gets a complete replacement. And I would guess at that point that it will probably get an electrified powertrain of option of some sort, either hybrid or plug-in hybrid, uh, because the Odyssey shares platforms with uh, Honda and Acura's other big, 
bigger utility vehicles like the Pilot and the MDX. Uh, the MDX already offers hybrid systems in it, uh, as well as the Ridgeline uh, pickup truck. So for now, you're stuck with the 280 horsepower, 3.5 liter Honda V6, stuck. which is an excellent engine. That's right. Stuck. I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> it's, well, it's a good the, the reason. The reason I say stuck is while I, I love the, the Honda V6, it's a great engine. Um, even with the 10 speed automatic that's in this thing, I didn't get outstanding fuel economy. Yeah. Was it in the it's, teens? It's, it's officially rated at 22 combined by EPA, 19 city, 28 highway. I was getting about 18. Yeah. That's about what I got with that. 18, 19, yeah. something like that. And, you know, so that's not great, especially, you know, when you consider what you can get from the competitors from, from Chrysler and from Toyota. Aside from that, you know, the, the rest of it, you know, is, is really great. Uh, Honda was the first one to offer the, uh, the interior camera system that is also available on the Pacifica now that has cameras mounted in the headliner, lets you keep tabs on what's going on in the second and third rows, you know, and display it on the center touchscreen. Again, if you've got young kids, you know, especially if they're, they're really young, you know, toddlers or babies that are in a child seat. I know when my kids were, were little, we would always get, uh, you know, one of these little, the little convex mirror. mirrors yeah. that you mount, you know, on the sun visor or somewhere, you know, so you could s- try to see what's going on in the back. And it was always obstructed and, you know, it was never, never a great view. Plus, you couldn't really see much in the dark either. With the, you know, the camera system that's in here, you know, you get a clear view of what's going on in both the second and third rows uh, from from overhead. So you can see, you know, if the kid needs some help or you know if there's if there's some interaction undesirable <laughs> interaction going on between multiple siblings yeah. i did um, i did like the surveillance abilities um yeah. and because it, and it, it also has night vision mode so it'll go it'll flip it to ir so it, you you can see stuff like you were talking about in the dark you can you can see how things are going without having to turn on a light and destroy yeah. the night visibility yeah, and there's also uh, a communication system that uh, you know with microphones in the ceiling uh, that yeah. lets you talk. You know, if you, if you got you know if one of your kids wants to sit decides they want to sit in the back, the third row, uh, be away from everybody, you can still talk to them back there without shouting at them, uh, things like that. Did you try so, it? Did you try it with like Daisy? Put Daisy in the back and call to her or anything? Like, yeah, <laughs> no. I, I mean, she doesn't really respond to stuff like that. <laughs> uh, so I tried it out. It makes you feel like. Um, like an old time PA announcer. Like all I can think of is the Lou Gehrig, like farewell speech, like today, today, yeah. today, today. The, the <laughs> echo. Thing, you can, you can hear it's a, it's a tight echo. It feels really strange. I think you'd get used to it and, and it probably will help if you've got people in that third row consistently, but for the second row, it's more of a, more of a little gimmick, but it's, it's a thing. I think that's kind of spreading. Mm-hmm. Honda's not the only one that does it. I think Toyota also does it. Yeah, um, and it's gonna, this is this is something we're going to see in a lot of vehicles going forward. You know what these systems are doing is they they know what audio is playing on the you know the the what mm. audio they that the system is producing. So if you're listening to the radio or something like that, and you say something you want to interrupt, uh, you know, or you know, in the case of some vehicles, you know, using a wake word for a voice assistant, you know, it knows what's playing, so it can often mostly pick out your voice out of that and actually interrupt what's going on. And then, you know, it, it, so you don't have to press any buttons or anything like that, which is really handy. You know, it's everything you can do to reduce the distractions for the driver, yeah. you know, trying to 
trying to find the button or uh, things like that. Uh, I think that that's, that's a real benefit. Uh, um, I'm, you know, I personally, you know, no longer have a use for that. Um, right. You know, my kids are uh, adults and gone, but I think, you know, I know that when my kids were younger, I definitely would have loved to have something like this when we were doing road trips. Especially if you can turn it up and make it real loud and get their attention. Like, <laughs> but it's it is one of those. You things. can also add some bass, yeah, and reverb to that. You know, <laughs> the voice of God in there. Like, you need to stop. The uh, the hardware is all there. Do yeah. I have to pull over this car? <laughs> right. Do I need to make it flood down there? Uh, the there's already mics in there for the phone, you know, the, mm-hmm. there's already the audio hardware and all the systems are integrated now. It's not like you need to patch one to the other. You need some kind of switchboard. So uh, it's interesting the things that have been made possible by the way vehicle electrical systems have become um, networked and and really like it's all just one big computer network. And it is really, it's like a phone system. Um, if you wanted to get it into like, if somebody's listening on the headphones, I'm assuming it'll drop your voice into the, the headphones, depending on, you know, cause you can, with these, yeah, you if, can get multiple. If they're sources. using the, the rear seat entertainment system with headphones, it'll, it'll patch into there as well. Yeah. So that's, it's, it seems like a silly little feature. And then you think about what you have to do to pull it off and you, as with so many things, it's, you go, oh, that's actually pretty clever. And it took some time to, to sort that out. And, um, if it's not useful, don't use it. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's it's virtually a, a no cost thing um, for them to be able to add. Yep. One you know one other thing I did notice about this you know after being in a, a number of more recently introduced vehicles over recent months that are getting larger and larger screens, mm. the eight inch center touchscreen in the Odyssey seems minuscule by comparison, especially like I was just in the, the Lincoln Nautilus a couple of weeks ago, the 13 inch display in there. Uh, and you know, the eight inch display in the, in the Odyssey just seems so quaint now. Well, yeah. And, and Honda doesn't help themselves out with, uh, graphics and, and UI. That's a little bit behind the curve as well. It seemed responsive enough when I had it. I don't know how your experience was with actually using the system, I was just at least glad that it's not that two screen knob controller oh, touchscreen yeah. business they had not too long ago. Well, that was only ever an Acura anyway. Well, maybe that's something I just I never did those in the Hondas. That was that was an Acura exclusive, thankfully. <laughs> was, Although um, you have to pay more to suffer. Yeah, Honda, their digital systems, they're just they've been difficult to use. I've, I found in the Odyssey at least it's it's easy enough to use. The system isn't isn't great. It's not that deep, so it's not that that hard to to get used to. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the interface is fine. It's, it's reasonably responsive. It didn't crash or anything on me. Um, didn't do anything silly. The, uh, it does have support for Apple CarPlay and Android auto, but both wired, no wireless support yet. Yep. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's a decent system. It, you know, I can live with it. Um, the, the elite that I had, had the, uh, the Blu-ray DVD entertainment system, uh, with wireless headphones available, leather trim inside. One of the the unique features of the Odyssey that you won't find in any other van, to my knowledge, is the second row seats that slide both forward and back and side to side. With the the second row seat, you've got two seats in the second row, you know, two captain's chairs, and you can either spread them out to the the outer perimeter and have a pat a walk through in between to the third row, or you can slide either of the seats to the middle position 
uh, and so you can walk through on the side. So in the old days, you know, when, when I was young, when minivans were still a new thing and they only had a door on one side, they typically had the, the second row seat was moved, was moved over towards the driver's side of the vehicle. Cause the, the sliding door was only on the passenger side. So you could get through the third row that way. Now with doors on both doors on both sides, you can actually slide it back and forth, slide both of the, the second row seats side to side as well, which is can be a very handy feature depending on how people want to sit. If you want to have your uh, a young child, you know, baby or toddler in a child seat in the in the middle position, so that, for example, a parent in the front passenger seat, not in the right. not in the driver's seat, but a parent in the front passenger seat could reach back and attend to that kid. You, know, you can have them in the center, uh, or if you've got older kids that you want physically separated a little bit, you know, at least by you know, eighteen, twenty-four inches, uh, you you have that option as well. But by an arm span, you know, the the nice thing um, that you can teach those kids when they get a little unruly is that you can unlock the side to side sliding, and then go around corners, especially S curves, <laughs> and they kind of. <laughs> I I don't recommend it as a responsible. I didn't thing, realize you could do that. If I, you could unlock them, I think so. While the vehicle's in motion, I think you can. Uh, unless it was one of the other. There's. I'm trying to remember which vehicle it was that we we played around with it like that. It wasn't the last Odyssey we had, but I noticed that it does have the the. You can spread the seats out a little bit, which is helpful. Um, but I I it was it was a couple years ago. I remember. Uh, you can. You can unlock the sliding, the side to side sliding, and then you go through some S curves, and it's like whack, whack. whack. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We entertain um, ourselves. So, how, well, how did you think uh, the interior quality was? Because that's the elite, and so it's supposed to be the nicest. And I felt my biggest gripe about that was the interior is nice, but it doesn't feel as nice as the nice interiors in other vans. I, I'm thinking particularly of the Pacifica because I haven't been in the Sienna yet. Um, but also it's loud. Like those were my two biggest gripes about it. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the, the interior in the Odyssey is nice enough. You know, you've got leather seating. The materials are, are generally, you know, good all around. Honda's pretty good about that. But compared to say the Pacifica Pinnacle, especially, uh, the, the newest high end version, but even like the limited models they've had in, in prior model years, uh, you know, it's not. It's not on the same level as the Pacifica. The Pacifica, you know, I think I haven't I haven't been inside the new Sienna yet, so I can't say for sure. But the the Pacifica, I think, is is really the the or at least it was the class of the field um, up until just now with the Sienna and now the new Kia Carnival. The, Kia, the Carnival actually looks really good too. Um, so the the Odyssey's not quite on that level, even in elite trim. Uh, and then it also, it is louder than the others, uh, that, you know, the V6, you know, sounds really good, but you do get more of that, that engine noise coming through and more, a little bit more road noise coming through. The Pacifica is definitely feels more refined on the road, uh, overall. And so that, that is something to keep in mind. Now, if you're interested in something that maybe feels a little bit more sporty, like you're interacting with it. A little bit more, uh, it's not really, you're getting more feedback from it. Yeah. Then the Odyssey is perhaps maybe the better choice for you because I think I, you know, either the Pacifica or the, uh, the Sienna, you know, particularly Sienna, you know, because it's standard hybrid system is generally, I think, going to be a little more quiet. And then the Pacifica plug in hybrid 
is also obviously very quiet most of the time. So I think that the 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 the, the Odyssey is definitely more of the it's got more of the tr- traditional Honda feel to it. You yeah, know, it's, I, I it's agree more there. Alive. I um I really did like the, the way the chassis actually feels. <laughs> this thing actually feels a little sporty. There's steering feel here, which was really surprising. Uh, so it's good to drive. It's just around town is better than on the highway. It's it's got a little road noise on the highway that gets fatiguing. But the Odyssey mm-hmm. Elite that I drove um, was priced at forty nine thousand three hundred and thirty five dollars, uh, including. Twelve hundred dollar delivery charge, or sorry, eleven hundred and twenty dollar delivery charge. Being a parent um, is which, expensive. You know, is not cheap, yeah. but it's you know it's in the same ballpark as recent Pacificas I've driven, uh, so it's it's certainly price competitive. And I think the the last Pacifica Pinnacle I had may have been even more than I think it was up into the fifties, like into the low fifties. So uh, these vehicles are like all vehicles are getting more expensive to to buy, uh, but you know you you do get a lot for your money. Yeah, well, that's the thing, too. I think if they're going to push into the $50,000 tier more aggressively, they're going to need something like the hybrid, like, you know, or uh, more luxury, maybe an Acura version would help them get there. Uh, <laughs> I doubt I, it. I don't, I don't see an Acura version of, of the auto, an Acura minivan coming anytime in the foreseeable future. If they replace this with another conventional Odyssey, there will certainly be a hybrid and and probably a plug-in hybrid version uh, available. But one thing that just occurred to me is the the possibility that Honda actually has um, a deal with GM. They're getting two electric vehicles from GM off the Altium platform, one for the Honda brand, one for the Acura brand. And they've described them as crossovers. Mm. Um, But... Given the way that the minivan segment has continued to shrink over the years, I wonder if what they might end up doing is replacing the Odyssey with something that a battery, a battery electric vehicle that is perhaps a little more uh, crossover like, you know, kind of the direction that, uh, that Kia has taken with the Carnival as they replace the Sedona. You know, they've, they've given it styling that is a little more crossover like. Uh, you know, it's still, you know, clearly very much a, a minivan, but Haunt, uh, Kia is not even referring to the Carnival as either a minivan or a crossover. They're calling it an MPV, a multi-purpose vehicle. So I wonder if Honda might go a similar path and use their Altium vehicle as a replacement for the Odyssey. It's not a bad move. I mean, it's it's not like the minivan is really all that different from a crossover. It's just, it's almost like the difference is in the top hat, really. So yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I, GM has never really been, uh, super successful with vans. So maybe it's GM hardware and, and Honda, um, clever. Yeah, it's it's going to be a, a GM Altium skateboard. Right. Which doesn't, but, doesn't really matter. Yeah. And then a Honda top hat on top of that. Hmm. Well, we'll see. Like they're, they're due. They're, everybody else has refreshed their vans. So. Um, the, the next Odyssey will be hopefully a leap from this one. All right. What'd All you right. have? So I had uh, another Ford truck. I had the <laughs> uh, F-350 uh, Super Duty with the 6.7 liter diesel and the Tremor package. So I've had enough of these now where I can kind of go off the top of my head <laughs> and say the diesel's going to cost you $10,000. The Tremor package is upgraded suspension and skid plates. Um, there's a thousand plus pound feet of torque. In this thing, so it is absurdly quick with nothing in it. <laughs> it's just like, um, 
Yeah, there's, and it's a solid axle truck. So I believe it's a solid front axle as well as a solid rear axle. So a lot of, you know, like your F-150s or, or 1500 uh, grade trucks will have independent front suspension. So they behave a little better. This is a little bit more stiff, a little bit more old school, but it's, it behaves pretty well. It, if you get it over broken pavement, it'll, it'll jiggle you around a bit because it, it is a little stiff with the tremor package especially, but they've got enough sway bar in there to make it corner better than you really, than you imagine it should. So it's a good truck. The new F-150 is the standard for Ford. So, you know, what's already out there in the super duties is, is going to be brought to that level uh, when they refresh it. So look for a larger screen and different uh, materials and, and design and stuff. Um, Over the air software updates. And- yeah. All that good stuff. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm just looking at the uh, Super Duty specs. The uh, the four by two F two fifty and F three fifty still have the classic. <laughs> oh, the six point two. This old <clears throat> twin I beam uh, front oh. suspension system. The twin I beam, which is like, ne- oh man, my dad's F one fifty had that's negative camber all the time because <laughs> it just yeah, wears. That's like, yeah, yeah, that that the twin I beams, you know, were basically. Yeah, you know, essentially really long control arms, you know, where the pivot point is the pivot point for the left wheel would be over on, to the right of the engine and the pivot point for the right front wheel would be to the left of the engine. You know, so they're going across. Yeah, so it's almost like two, um, two independently pivoting uh, beam axles or solid axles for each front wheel. Yeah, I never and understood then, the geometry behind that because it always seemed to me like with a, such a long lower control arm you you get you get weird well you do you get weird camber going on with it as it as it goes through its, it's well you're uh, you're actually going to get because you've got such a long pivot arm you're going to have less camber change oh okay um, be, you know cuz if you think about it you know what think about where the where the pivot point is you've got uh from from that pivot point the radius out to where the wheel is actually moving you know, if you think about the arc of a circle, yeah, you know, a longer radius circle, it's going to be flatter through that region where uh, where the the wheel's actually moving up and down. That makes sense. It's just then, I guess, I guess what happens too is like whatever the I don't I don't really know what the twin I beam front suspension looks like, um, like to service. I I left home before the truck needed to be worked, <laughs> um, but that that upper control arm. Then, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I always just remember seeing the the Econo lines going down the road, and they were like, <laughs> they're set up to rally. <laughs> they always yeah. had the sort of saggy looking front end, um, where they'd wear the inside of that front tire. Um, yeah. And then they uh, the for the four by fours, like what you had, the Tremor. It's got what they refer to as a mono beam, mono coil beam. springs, <laughs> mono beam. All, it's all, called a differential, a solid axle, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's, we stuck a Dana 44 under there or whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's, it gets a rugged truck and it's designed to, to work. Uh, so a lot of the features are, are designed around that. The, um, in the bed, it has the, uh, I forget what it's called. It's like Ford connect or something. So it's got the, the system where there's four basic anchor points and then they're like cleats and you can get the accessories that go across the bed and, and stuff like that. Um, motorized running boards which we've talked about before super handy because it is uh it's a tall beast and we are fun-sized people so it's (laughs) difficult to get in without it i'm just imagining uses for that 
that diesel. Did you manage to pull out that stump yet? No, I haven't pulled anything yet. Uh, yeah. We've been ferrying kids around. We did, we took it skiing though. You could you could just relocate your house with that. Thing. I could, I could. Uh, I'm trying to imagine like what you would use that much torque for. And, and I just told a friend, I was like, let's go steal some RVs. <laughs> you could just hook them up and boost them. Like they're not going to catch you. Even if, if you get in a police chase, it's not going to care that it's hauling an RV. You know, it doesn't care for a five or 10,000 pound RV. It's not going to matter. Especially uh, F-350, 4x4. Um, oh, the 4x4 rear... may have reduced your, your towing a bit. Well, the, the single rear wheel is 15,000 pounds. The dually is uh, 20,000 pounds. Yeah, single rear wheel is what we've got in the drive. I haven't had a dual rear wheel press car in a long time. <laughs> um, that's a lot of weight. That When you think about what normal people tow, like that's, that's a lot. Um, and I, I know that the... Super Duty isn't designed just for normal people, so that's part of it. That's 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 actually conventional towing. Conve- oh, so with wheel. fifth wheel or gooseneck is more. Uh, with a fifth wheel F three fifty four by four single wheel is twenty two thousand four hundred pounds. <laughs> Dually, you can go with the uh, the uh, the four point one to one rear axle ratio. Oh man, thirty five thousand four hundred pounds. Okay, so so you could pretty much take your house. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if my house weighs thirty five thousand pounds. I I, don't, I haven't calculated out what a house weighs. Um, <laughs> if you go to the four fifty, yeah, four fifty uh, dually uh, rear wheel drive, thirty seven thousand pounds. Yeah, it's, I I also um, I'm trying to figure out where that that gulf is where you actually need a commercial license versus just your regular driver's. And I and maybe it doesn't matter when you're just an individual towing something too versus like towing for. You know, backhoes for like uh, construction. I think that there is a a threshold, you know, based on like vehicle class. I think, you know, class, certainly class five and above, I think you have to have a commercial driver's license. Um, So that's like over, I think it's over 14,000 pounds gross vehicle weight. Oh, yeah. This probably doesn't get there. It's probably not quite 14,000 pounds. It's, It's not a light truck, but it's not, it's not that heavy. The, the weight classes are based on gross vehicle weight, which is a combination of curb and payload. Right. So the curb weight for the 350 <clears throat> diesel uh, single rear wheel is uh, 7,300 pounds. Oh, it's heavier than I thought. Wow. Is it? Did you have a short wheelbase or long wheelbase? Uh, I think or this is long the long wheelbase. Uh, oh, it's only 4x2 with the long wheelbase? Uh, looks like, or that's that's the super cab. Sorry, you had a crew cab. Right? I had a crew cab. Yeah. So crew cab. S. There are so many. Combinations I know. I know. We're going to be things. here all day. It's just it's... Nuts. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's still um, seventy-seven hundred pounds that's, for that's... long wheelbase four by four uh, with the diesel. That's heavier than I thought, and it is a tuna boat. It's a little difficult to maneuver in tight parking lots because it, it is kind of long. Um, yeah. But. That's okay. So then it's, it's payload is three, about 3000 pounds. Class, class four is uh 14 to 16,000 pounds. Yeah. See, so it doesn't get there So Yeah. So I think uh, class five is over 16, 16 to, to 19,000 pounds. So that's, I think where you have to have a commercial driver's license. I yeah. think a class four, you can drive without a, a CDL. I don't want somebody towing 30,000 pounds without knowing what they're doing behind me. <laughs> yeah. In front of me, that's fine. You do whatever what, you want. What's but. what's what's the heaviest trailer you've ever towed? Uh, not not anywhere above maybe a couple thousand pounds. I've I haven't yeah. even towed a car, like not any appreciable distance anyway. Like 
I've, I've, I've towed a 12,000 pound trailer and that is, um, it's an experience. I mean, you, you do need some, some training before you do that, especially, you know, on mountain roads. Yeah. Um, fortunately, you know, I, I did this, uh, during, uh, like a decade ago on a GM heavy duty truck, uh, launch drive in 2010. Uh, and, uh, it was in West Virginia. And so one of their engineers, you know, gave me a, a lesson in, in how to drive and maneuver with a 12,000 pound trailer on the back. And, there's a lot more momentum there. Once you get up to speed, <laughs> you have to be really careful. Fortunately, modern trucks like this Tremor and you know all, all the other modern trucks, one of the, the cool new features they have in there is trailer sway control. Yeah. Because when you get a, a big trailer like that and you're driving down the highway and if you get a crosswind or something like that or even just small motions of the vehicle that get that thing – moving back and forth like a pendulum. Yeah, it starts to amplify as you correct. and It does, yeah. yeah. And so all the modern trucks have trailer sway control standard on there. So it's looking, you know, it, it's basically an extension of the stability control where it's looking for motions of the vehicle relative to what your actual input is. And if it detects it's starting to sway, it will actually start applying the brakes um, on the, the mm. uh I think on the rear wheels uh, or maybe the fronts or maybe all four opposing to sort of steer it. Yeah. So it'll start pulsing one, one side to the other to try to stabilize it and get it back under control again. And it works really well. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the kind of things that that and integrated trailer brake controllers like back in not too long ago, those are all things you'd have to add to the truck. And Mm -hmm. now they all have it. Uh, This even has an exhaust brake because it has the variable variable nozzle turbo. So it can just (laughs) close it down and and give you that that sort of back pressure that that, uh, slows it down with compression. So it's really, it's set up to work. So it feels kind of ridiculous driving around, like, you know, just taking the kids to dance. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly what I've been doing as I take one of the kids to dance is I've been explaining the, the, we've been using the BNO audio system and I've been explaining (laughs) the the Fletcher Munson curve to her, which is, uh, she's into music now. And so, um, is explaining, uh, the different, different mixes and things she hears because she likes like eighties music. And, and so I can explain some things. And I'm just like, why do you like that song? Why do you like that band? They suck. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, so we'll, we'll put on the phone and I'll just skip things. She's like, why are you skipping it? I'm like, I hate them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so the Fletcher Munson curve is the, is the, um, the frequency response of the human ear plotted against sound pressure level. And they sort of, they cross at about 85 DB. Um, and that's where your, your ear sort of flattens out and has the most even frequency response. So I was explaining, I don't know if my 15 year old understood it, but, um, she, she liked it when we played stuff loud. Well, that's the thing about being a parent is, you know, you get to, you get the, uh, the, you're free to explain things like that, whether they, you know, understand it or care about it. Yeah. It gives me a chance to just, um, explain the things that excite me. So I've been explaining the difference between chamber and plate reverbs and and stuff. Um, it's like, Oh, that's a chamber. I like chambers. Chambers So as an audio guy, let me ask you, you know, my, I'm less attuned to, you know, subtle differences in sound quality. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I can, I can, I'll, I'll detect gross things. Like I've got one pair of, uh, wireless earbuds that, sound okay for listening to podcasts but as soon as you put on music you know the the bass and you know even the lower mid-range is really muddy and just sound yep. they're really awful and they actually happen to be B&O but that's a whole <laughs> other story so I'm, I'm curious you know as somebody who is more attuned to sound than I am what what did you think of the B&O system 
It's well, and that was, I think, sort of where I was going is like, it's good once you get it up in that sweet spot. Once you get it playing loud enough to sound decent, it sounds decent. It's it, car audio systems tend to always do the boom and sparkle thing where they have overemphasized bass and, and, and high end, and there's that scoop in the middle. We used to call it the smiley face EQ curve back when you had graphic equalizers where you'd, you'd boost the low end and the high end. Um, and that's that's sort of something you do when you play it at lower volumes when you're not putting out that kind of sound pressure. That's that's basically your loudness switch um, on your, your old receiver. And it, it does the same thing. It sort of lifts up both ends of the, the, the frequency response so it sounds more full when it's not um, moving as much air. I, I'm not a real fan of the B&O systems. Otherwise, they generally... They're okay. I overpaying for for car audio systems is a thing now. Like they'll give you the the branded system and it's all fancy and it's none of them sound really good across generally all brands. There's a couple that impress me, but I, it's such a crappy environment for audio anyway. Yeah. Like you're well, not. That's, that's the thing. You're, you're right. It, it is a it's a bad ambient environment. Because there's so much other stuff going on. You got that, noise. You got resonance. Like the yeah. car is made out of metal. If, yeah. <laughs> if you're gonna build speakers, you don't want to build them out of sheet metal. You want to build them out of like roofing tile, like the the terracotta, something dense. You know, like lead. <laughs> you don't you don't want to build them out of out of. That's why so many speaker cabinets are MDF because it's much more dense than even um, like some some kind of hardwood, which is it's just gonna resonate sympathetically and it's gonna screw you. And mm-hmm. and there's you know. Um, that's a, that's a very deep rat hole. <laughs> um, I, well, you know, but the thing is, like you said, you know, every, almost every automaker is offering branded, you know, premium audio systems or, you know, what they call premium audio systems in their vehicles now, yeah. you know, Ford used to use Sony mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. They announced I, that they were I switching over to, did not to, like the Sony systems. Yeah. I didn't, they, I, they, I remember switched not over like to, to BNO play, which is actually different from BNO, like B, Bang & Olufsen, the, the company Bang & Olufsen, they originally established the B&O Play sub-brand, like, I don't know, a decade ago, as their, like, more, uh, their more mainstream, lower-cost mm. brand. And then after a few years, they sold it off to Harman. So it's, right. it is yet another Harman brand. Yeah, Harman is one of those that, like, they basically own uh, car Car they're audio they're car like the Luxottica. Yeah. Know, the, the Luxottica owns all the eyeglass brands. Harman owns most of the audio car audio brands. They do. I think the diff, one of the independents is still Bose. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've talked about Bose, but their stuff sounds different. And it, 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 it can be pleasing. Bose stuff tends to be kind of warm and mushy. Um, so it's, it, it has that more impressive sound at lower, lower volume levels. Bose their tech tends to be like, we took all of these tiny little speakers and wired them together so that they work like a giant speaker. You're like, that's great. So I phase artifacts is anytime you've got lots of crossovers and electronics going on, like the thing you hear. And even when you use an equalizer, you don't hear the equalization, you hear the phase artifacts that, that 
of what you're doing is is more more what you're doing. So in studio gear, like we talk about, well, I could I could do this, and it was really clean. It's we use uh, there's two different kinds of EQ generally. There's there's FIR, which is finite impulse response, and IIR, which is infinite impulse impulse response. FIR filters, it's a lot more math. And um, I, I think I may have this backwards, um, but they sound cleaner and you can you can actually be more surgical with them. So if you actually want to use it as a correction versus an effect, you know, the the older stuff that everybody likes, that has a tone. Well, it has a tone because it's full of artifacts and, and stuff. So that's all we're really listening to in an automotive environment is like what vibrates what interacts with other things you're off axis i hate surrounding cars absolutely despise it it always just sounds weird to me um unless you have something that is surround encoded and and then it moves it to the right place but i don't i don't like it <laughs> i'm picky yeah well some some of these you know modern um infotainment systems have you know they've got dsps in there they're creating all kinds of different sound fields yeah uh you know, like in the Volvos and census, you know, one of the options is this concert hall surround, which always sounds really weird. It to sounds me. hollow. It <laughs> sounds because it's, yeah. it's, it's adding a little bit of ambient. Um, it's adding a little bit of reverb basically. And so that messes again with your, your frequency response. It's, it's, it's a little bit of pre-delay and a little bit of reverb on the backside. So pre-delay is it, it delays what goes into the reverb. So you get that distinct, like, the actual impulse, the actual sound, and then as it enters the the reverb, there's a delay in between there, and then you've got your reverb tail. And I don't know, I don't honestly want to listen to a car that sounds like I'm in a church. Like that's like that's just too much space around me. And it's yeah. it's funny to play with the modes too, and just watch how it just collapses when you hit stereo. And it's like, well, here's how everything actually sounds when we're not fiddling with it. Here's what the drivers do. And um, if you want good car audio, you need expensive drivers. Uh, you need a lot of power and you need a lot of sound deadening. And, and um, that's why like something like Dynamat uh, works pretty well, but you have to use like jute on top of it because Dynamat increases the mass of the panels so that it doesn't vibrate. Uh, it's, it's basically tar paper you, you put on the back of your, your panel so that that panel now uh, you've increased the, the resonant frequency of it. And you've, you've got to do all that stuff to make car audio good. You're not, no automaker is going to do that um, to the degree that, I'm going to want because <laughs> I'm so picky. Um, yeah. I do like how Porsche does like they actually integrate the enclosures and, and stuff into the structure of the car, which is, is clever because it doesn't take up space. You're not like putting a, a speaker enclosure somewhere. You're designing a cavity in the unibody. Which well, the, the cool. thing, the thing that we're going to start seeing in the next few years, uh, and I've, I've gotten a few demonstrations of this now from um, Hitachi and now that, that division of Hitachi or Clarion um, was acquired a couple of years ago by um, Forcia, uh, a big, a big automotive supplier, is this idea of actually eliminating the the traditional speaker driver and actually mounting actuators on the backside of various surfaces of the vehicle, yeah. and using those surfaces as the essentially the, the speaker cone, and actually you know, at least you know stationary. It actually sounds surprisingly good. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the. Um, I'd love to hear that because that that is sort of you know when you get a, a source like that when you get it to radiate, you you really do get a sense of the sound just being part of the ambient surroundings, and and then all you have to do is figure out how to package the low frequency stuff, how to package yeah. the subwoofer. Well, and you know one of one of the things that um, you know you can do with that is like 
for example, put actuators in the seat. Yep. And you know, in the headrest, and they're you know they're much smaller than traditional speakers, so a lot easier to package, and you can create little sound bubbles yeah. around each individual seat, so individuals can listen to different things without disturbing each other, and also at the same time, uh, you know, ha- you know, have have decent sound, you know, and not not have to use headphones. So I think it's a it's a really interesting approach and we'll, we'll see how you know how people like it but in the the demos i've had it actually works shockingly well and i derailed the podcast i'm sorry all right <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Just a couple thoughts on Sabine Schmitz. For those not familiar with her, you know, she was a race car driver. She grew up near the Nürburgring. Uh, Her family owned a, a hotel adjacent to the Nürburgring. So she lived in that area her entire life and you know has dri- driven there for decades uh, she was 51 when she died she was one of the most successful race car drivers on the on the ring she won the 24 hours of the Nürburgring twice and won countless other races among her other things that she did you know the, the many things that she did during her lifetime was being a ring taxi driver you've probably heard about you know going and driving on the Nürburgring they have a whole lot of a bunch of public days, you know, when it's not closed for automaker testing or for races, on the public days, you can pull up to the gate at the Nürburgring, pay, I don't know what the fee is now. When I was there, it was about, uh, equivalent of about 20 bucks. What? Uh, and, and, and literally <laughs> anything that you're driving. Wait, you know? wait, wait. It's, tw- why do we not do that here? <laughs> <laughs> Product liability lawyers. I don't, but they're German. They're, they've got no no fewer no shortage of uh, persnickety lawyers. So so you can literally pay the fee, take a lap of the ring, and and whatever you've got. The first time I did it was in an Audi ninety rental car in the <laughs> mid nineties. Um, it was a front wheel drive, manual transmission. And when I got off the track, you know, I got out and took a look at the tires, and they were just completely feathered. There was smoke coming out of the brakes. Uh, it was hysterical. Um, and it's a rental, too, so you just hand it back that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're not inclined to drive it yourself and you really want to have the ring experience, the other option you have is taking a ring taxi. And they have a fleet of uh, BMW 5 Series, I think it's M5s mostly. Um, and you can ride along with a professional driver that knows the track. I mean, this is a 13 and a half mile long track, with 120 some odd corners. I drive it all the time in, in Gran Turismo now, <laughs> but I've driven it a few times in real life. And it's a, it's a phenomenal track. It is 
the kind of track that would never get built in the 21st century because it's incredibly dangerous. Many people have died there. But Sabine Schmitz, you know, one of the things that she did was she was a ring taxi driver. And I would have loved to have taken a lap with her. I never met her, but I have had the opportunity to ride shotgun a, f- a few times with other race car drivers, including at the, the Nuremberg Ring. Back in 2010, uh, I went on a trip with Buick for the launch of the, uh, the Buick Regal, which was being built in Germany. It was based on the Opel Insignia. And part of the drive, we went to the Nürburgring, drove, you know, drove some laps around uh, the Nordschleife in lead and follow mode. So we're, they had two of their Opel DTM drivers, DTM is a German uh, racing series, Manfred Winkelhock and uh, Jochen Maas. And they were going at a pretty good pace, but because they knew where, the, where to go, where the lines were, you know, it was a lot safer and easier for us to, to just follow them. And then after we were done with that, we got to hop in the car with them. They were driving. They were each driving uh, the Insignia GS, which was the the turbocharged three liter V six, three hundred horsepower all wheel drive version of it. And when uh, I, I I rode with Yoke and Mass, and it was just a phenomenal experience. You know, I mean, this guy knows the the ring. You know, I mean, he, he, probably not quite as experienced as uh, Sabine Schmitz. But you know he's driven there countless times, and it's it's an if you like a thrill ride, you know, if you're in Germany, go there if there's an open day, and either go for a drive or do both. Go for a drive and then take a take a ride with one of the professionals, and it's it's unlike any experience you'll ever have automotively. But one of one of my other experiences riding with a race car driver was actually here in Michigan. Uh, in 20, also in 2010, uh, had it, I was GM did a, a small event with just a, a handful of people at the Milford proving grounds. And it was a few days before, um, the Michigan, uh, NASCAR race in the summer. And, uh, uh, Juan Pablo Montoya, who was driving for, uh, Ganassi racing in NASCAR at the time, uh, they brought him to Milford and they had the uh, the Corvette ZR1 there, the the supercharged uh, LS9 uh, ZR1, and I got to ride for uh, around the Milford Road Course, uh, which is also known as the Lutz Ring. You know, it's this the handling ring, course right? <laughs> that they that they built uh, in the early 2000s, uh, you know, based on input from uh, from Bob Lutz for doing vehicle development, and I I had driven that that course uh, several times before in Corvettes and in other vehicles and was relatively familiar with it. But getting into the passenger seat with Juan Montoya was an experience unlike anything else. <laughs> I mean, he was, I mean, he was thrashing that Corvette, you know, where, you know, I was, you know, I was driving quick when I drove it, you know, I was not hanging the back end out, going around corners. I mean, he was just going all out in this thing and just chattering along the entire time. Right. I, mean, I think, and that's the thing that um, people mentioned about uh, Sabine as well. It's like, she could just do it while just being, you know, just, it's like a normal day at the, you know, yeah, just totally relaxed. Like, yeah. That's crazy. It's, it's like being, like being in any, any taxi, you know, in a New York taxi, you know, with a, with a cab driver. <laughs> Those guys you know, are pretty badass too. I don't drive yeah. around the city that way. <laughs> but they're not going anywhere near these kinds of speeds. No. Yeah. So it was it was a pretty amazing experience. You know, looking at uh, Sabine's career, just the fact that she can do 
what not everybody can do with that 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 whole, like you've got it you've got the the ability to to drive and to be fast and to win races but you've also got the ability to present and to have that kind of personality and to like, she was on top gear and uh you know just not everybody has that that sort of racing ability and then just the the personality to get out there and, and get people excited about auto racing and driving and, and that kind of stuff and and tell the story in a really engaging way and have fun with it um you know there's a lot lot more racing drivers who are uh let's say um unfriendly <laughs> that's probably yeah. probably a better word than the one that i'm thinking of um so yeah it, it's just a uh, it's a great loss and and i was shocked to find out that she was only 51 um that's uh it sucks <laughs> yeah i i was looking to see if there's anything set up um for you know, like donations or any kind of foundation. Um, I don't think there is, but if one of our listeners knows, you know, certainly uh, if you have, uh, may- maybe one of our listeners has been around the the ring with uh, Sabine as a taxi driver. Who knows? Uh, we yeah, have- let, let us know if you've taken a ring taxi drive and uh, yeah. uh, share your story. Someone else has just jumped into the Zoom room with us here. Rebecca? Hello! Greetings Hello. from the road! So where... Where are you? So we are, we're just outside of Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, so you're nowhere. We are in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Literally. Our, our ultimate destination shall continue to remain a mystery um, as for, as well as our purpose uh, for driving, because I, I am still under, I am still actually seriously under embargo. So that's why I can't say, I can't is this, say anything. Is this, it's not that I is this a danger for you? Or are we living on the edge right now? Because you're, you're not really supposed to be talking to us. We are living so on the edge right now. <laughs> So, uh, Rebecca, I, I noticed you using the plural we. Um, yes. It sounds like sounds like you're not alone there. Who Who's with you? I am not alone. I have a very special guest. And it <laughs> is in the car. Nicole Wakeland. Yay! I'm back. Hey, hey Nicole. Hey. <laughs> this time I am serving as her co-driver. Um, so I'm plying her with like large quantities of Starbucks, <laughs> making sure she doesn't go stir crazy. And, you know, because it's so exciting driving through Nebraska. Uh, so you, yeah. got, you got the course notes there and, and reading out. You know, I do. What, I'm just screaming out left, 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 slow down, left, break, hard, turn <laughs> right. right, left, left. Yeah, I got and, this. And we are also accompanied by Lucy. Her little it's, kitty. Oh. Hey, Lucy. So Did you Lucy drug Lucy? Lucy is, um, I, I, Sorry, I've established that Lucy is deaf. Um, and so if for better or for worse, I, I had her at the vet before we left and she was in otherwise excellent, excellent health, which is amazing for a 16 year old kitty cat. I'm a big proponent of restraining your pets in the car. So her carrier is attached to the seat. I'm actually going to try and get us on the road. What are you driving? So I am driving Sergio. I am driving my Alfa Romeo Stelvio. Um, that I got a few weeks ago that our listeners know about my traumatic purchasing experience, (laughs) (laughs) which then in the end, they, um, I think I told you guys, they actually delivered the car to the house, which was great. It was really, really convenient. And I will say that 
you know, for people that are concerned about COVID safety and such, uh, you know, talk to your dealer and, and, you know, be frank with them and, and you can do everything outside. Um, you can do all your paperwork, everything, uh, you know, from the safety of your home and sitting outside and, um, and then they'll, you know, if you want to, they will go through the car with you. If you prefer not to be in the car with somebody, that's fine. They can even st- stand outside while you play with the different features and such. But, you know, there are ways to deliver a car safely, even in COVID times. So how is how is it? How do you like it? You got it all broken in now, right? Are you varying your speed so that you... I know uh, I've got... Uh, well, you know, we're varying our speed between almost legal and totally not. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's made for. <laughs> so, those are your options. <laughs> yeah, but the well, speed the limit goes... out here is 75, which is just delightful. <laughs> yeah, which means that you actually just crank it up to 10 over. You just set it at 90 and just be fine. It's... Yep, 90 and forget it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it is, it is interesting. You know, there's, uh, we just made a left-hand turn and somebody actually waited for us to do that, which is interesting. (laughs) They're they're so like freakishly nice in the Midwest, (laughs) like in New Hampshire, where they would like cut you off and flip you the bird here. They're like, Oh no, no, you're making a wrong turn at a light. Go ahead. I'll wait for you. Like they're so polite. It's, it's unbelievable. It is. Are you going to move then? Or do you like to get like, I I like it up here when you do that and then you get rolled coal on. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so it is um so we're on I80 and it is very flat and it is unbelievably windy today and we can see the tractor trailer sort of swaying. We actually saw a relatively new RV that was being trailered uh that uh, by a pickup truck. Right? It was a pickup truck, yeah, right? Pickup truck. Uh, and they had flipped over, uh, which fortunately we did see people walking around. So everyone seemed to be okay. But um, now we're on the highway. We're going about, we're getting up to speed. And so we may have a lot of wind. If it's too much, we can pull over again. And, you know, but um, we really just wanted to, to check in and touch base and introduce Nicole. Yeah. So um, we got some, we have some news to share, I think about Nicole, right? I hope we do. Um, so <laughs> Rebecca and our grand quest to places we can't announce. Um, she will be leaving the show, as you all know, and I will be trying to step in and fill Rebecca's uh, shoes, which I can also say I was going to say it. I'm going to say it to fill her very stinky shoes because she took her shoes off in the car yesterday. Oh, my God. I almost died. But yes, I'm going to fill her very it's only stinky shoes. one there. <laughs> Oh, it's not like you even you can't even have, you can't even put them in the trunk, right? Because it's the Stelvio, so they like they're just there. They're just a, a a scent vector. Even if you put them all the way in the back, that's oh well. Well, no, it is. I I historically do not have smelly feet. Just to clarify, so she um, but for some reason, this one pair of shoes, it's not okay. Even with me, it's not okay. It was not okay. It was not okay. Uh, well, yeah. So oh I, my I, gosh. We're thrilled to have you join the show. I think it's so. As you guys know, Nicole was was a special guest a few weeks ago, and um, and that was a little trial run for us all. Seems like um, se- seems like for now it's uh, it- it's something that you enjoy doing. So. Well, and she, <laughs> get tired of us. Yeah, well, yeah. So Nicole is up in your area, Dan. And so what will be cool is that, you know, you guys sometimes have the same cars. It'll be a little bit, you know, there'll be some um, real, really an opportunity to compare and contrast 
your experiences with the same vehicle oftentimes. Yeah, the exact same vehicle. Oh, which reminds me, did you ever get that Escalade I cheated you out of? Oh my gosh, I literally had the Escalade this past week and it arrived in my driveway and I was like, it's about time. Thanks a heck of a lot, Dan. Finally, I get this car. <laughs> was it the gray one? So yeah. The, the the gray one that I had with the uh, yes it was what, the yeah. the yeah it was like I don't know it was like yeah sort of a sealy gray color yeah it was really nice I loved it yeah. that was a fun few days I felt very baller running around rural New Hampshire in this giant expensive Escalade <laughs> but you did yeah. like it though right? I did I liked it very much actually I really did like it what were so I, I got to ask you something Nicole uh, did you try out the um, augmented reality display. I did not. I oh, didn't. Okay. I did not. So I can't speak to that. So I did not. No. So what is that? In the instrument cluster, the small touchscreen to the left of the instrument cluster, you can pick between the normal gauge display and maps. And you can also get the AR display where what it does, is it takes the view from the camera behind the windshield that is normally for your forward collision warning. We talked about this last week, I think, or the week before. Yeah. Um, and uh, it actually displays the camera view in the instrument cluster on that that beautiful OLED display in there. And then when you're using navigation, it superimposes the navigation prompts and makes it look like they, you know, so like things like your turns, oh, that's you know, right. this is turn, it displays it, you know, over floating over the intersection. And I was just curious if you'd had a chance to try it and what your thoughts on that were. Yeah, I, I didn't get a chance to try it, but you know what? I did think that the way they had the screen set up. So it's like, you know, the tiny little screen to your left, what is it like a seven inch then like a 14 then a 10 inch and how it curves that one it looks like one giant screen even though it's three that looks really slick i really loved how that looked it looked very of the future it was a really well designed uh, screen i loved how they did it we're not huge fans of lots of screens in cars uh so the way that cadillac has done it has has been good enough uh that it's impressed us i think the few times we've talked about the escalade um on the show it's been positive. So uh, well, I think the way them. they've done it, it somehow does like you look at some cars and it's just all you see is screen and it's like, they're so big and there's so much around them and so many buttons that they overwhelm the dashboard. This is very clean, despite being a huge screen or a huge series of screens. It doesn't, you don't even realize that like the little piece to the left of the instrument cluster, it takes a second before you realize like that actually is still screen. That's like more. It's very well done. So it's not this intrusive, overwhelming, like I'm suddenly sitting, you know, in a video game console with three screens set up. It, it's really good. I like how they did it. Yeah, I think the, the fact that it's not ridiculously tall helps a lot there. So it's, you know, it's, it's wide, but not, um, you know, but relatively narrow in height. So it, it uh, I think that, helps to mitigate some of that being overwhelmed by it yeah because like if you look at the cars that have the more tablet style screens right in the center of the dash those are huge and technically mm -hmm. that's not as much screen space probably as what you have across the dash of the escalate but it overwhelms the dashboard this doesn't how they did it, it just doesn't feel it looks great but it doesn't feel overwhelming so when you get back from your undisclosed location, uh, you'll hopefully still have a, a chance. Well, I guess it's gone now already, isn't it? You, you... What, the Escalade? The Escalade will be disappearing from my driveway, I believe, tomorrow. Wow. But then, I don't know, I think... I, I don't quite know the schedule. I know that's surprising, but I don't quite know the schedule. Um, <laughs> that's not surprising. <laughs> so I, I, I believe that next Friday, which is after I get back from... Venture, I'll have an NSX for a long weekend. Oh, sweet. 
How? Yeah, so uh, she's de- she's debuting her first garage entry with the NSX. Yeah, so, yeah, right, exactly. My first garage, it'll be the NSX, just a whatever kind of lane, whatever car, you know, that's what I'll be talking about. This well, is why... Also- this and is why you become an, an actoy juror because I was going to say no, it's serious. Since since her appearance, Nicole has been christened as the newest North American Car and Truck of the Year juror. Yeah, it's very exciting news. It's it, amazing. It is exciting. I'm pretty excited about it. So yeah, that was that made me very happy. I felt quite honored that they said, "Hey, come join us." To our listening audience. You're getting an upgrade from Rebecca. Ah, no, you're not. <laughs> my feet don't stink as much. So, you know. It's a cross grade. It's a cross grade. That's a much a cross grade. Yeah. Um, but no, I think we're, we're thrilled to have you on the show, and we're, we're looking forward to uh, seeing all the stuff that you get as an actoy juror that we're never going to touch as just plebeian car reviewers. So that'll be interesting. You might not say that. You never know what I'm going to get. Watch, I'm going to get the most, like, Boring, like dishwater, dull cars after this NSX. That's all I'm going to have for a month. Thank you so much for uh, for checking in from the road, uh, Nicole. We are really thrilled to have you joining us, and we are going to miss you, uh, Rebecca. Thank um, you. Yeah, I think your 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 audio is starting to break up just a little bit, so okay. I think. Uh, you know, um, pro- now is probably a good time to let you guys go and, and continue the adventure. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys. Right, have fun. Bye. As, as we record this today, it's the, the 21st of March. An embargo is going to be lifting. So by the time you hear this, the news of this year's Jeep Easter Safari concepts. Every year, uh, they have the Jeep Easter Safari out in Moab in Utah. And it's a gathering of Jeep aficionados. And for the last, I don't know how many years now, Jeep's been putting together a little fleet of special concepts every year to highlight some of the Mopar accessories that they have for for the various Jeep models. And they also usually put together a couple of special vehicles, you know, that are non-production, one of which is often a, a total concept, and then the other one is a resto mod. So this year for the for the resto mod, Jeep built up uh, a what they call the Jeepster Beach. It's a, a, a 1968 Jeepster Commando, but underneath that body is the chassis of a brand new JL Wrangler. So it's got modern engine of the same suspension that you can get on a Wrangler Rubicon out of the dealer today, but with that classic Jeepster Commando styling on it. The, the Jeepster is one of those sort of phantom jeeps that not everybody remembers it's a little bit different you know it's it's i think it's underneath it all is there's the normal jeep frame but it's a larger body than like the cj was it was it was more of a i'm trying to describe it how would you describe a jeepster <laughs> um if, if anything it's you know it's closer i think in size to a modern wrangler than the the CJs of that era, you know, the 1960s and 1970s, because those those things were really small. It is a bit bigger. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty. I think I'd say pretty close in size to a current two door Wrangler, but it was also the the first Jeep uh, that was ever available with a V8 engine. Although I think the I'm not mistaken, I think the the Beach actually has the uh, the Panastar V6 in it. Yeah, and it's got the basically the stock. Wrangler Rubicon chassis underneath it. And but what one of the things that's really cool about this as well is the paint on this thing. They came up with this special color that uh, I was on a, a briefing call with the uh Jeep guys earlier this week and the the color of this thing is this gold 
uh, mica uh, color that is, I guess, you know, is not something that they're going to be reproducing for production for any production vehicles because it's it's way too difficult to, to do and, and uh, way too expensive. But it's it looks awesome on this particular Jeep. Yeah, and I'm not normally a fan of gold, but I I'll agree. It does. It looks really good. What do they call it? It's it's a it's a brightly they call it a brightly colored two tone paint scheme of hazy IPA and zinc oxide. Hazy <laughs> IPA. Okay. I mean sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't wouldn't describe that as a hazy IPA. Okay. That's fine. I'd need to see it in the sun. They have to send it here so I can I can check it out. It's it's funny that they show the Jeep serve from the the angle that they show it in the pictures too, because it, it really does have that kind of Wrangler look to it. But when you see a Jeepster out in the wild, it looks weird. And um, they, they are a little unusual looking because the back end is longer yeah. than a classic Jeep. And the you know, instead of the vertical rear end, it's got a forward sloping rear end. So it's it's a it's an interesting looking vehicle and, and they, they didn't build them for that long, but it's it's pretty cool. When were they originally built? They were uh and they were Kaiser era, right? Yeah, so like six late sixties through seventies, like mid seventies. I think or something. so, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and sorry, I, I I was mistaken. This one actually has the uh, the two liter turbo four cylinder, not the Pentastar V six. And they, they did do some different calibrations on this one. So they, they bumped the power and torque by about twenty five percent. To uh, 340 horsepower and 369 pounds feet of torque. Well, that should be enough. Yeah, it'll do. <laughs> the other Jeep concept that they released for the the Easter Safari is the Magneto. That's a battery electric Wrangler. It is. Basically. Yeah. So right now Jeep is just launching the the Wrangler 4xe, which is a plug-in hybrid that you can go out and, and buy. But the the Magneto is uh, basically a prototype for a future. Um, electric full battery electric jeep it's based on the two-door wrangler design wise the body is pretty much stock wrangler it doesn't look dramatically different it's got a pretty cool white uh white and blue paint job on it and they took four of the battery packs from the 4xe from the plug-in hybrid so that's a i think about a 13 kilowatt hour battery pack and they've installed those one is in the back uh or yeah one, one's in the back uh two are underneath the the body uh, and then one is in the front under the hood. And uh, they haven't given a whole lot of details on the specs of this, uh, of this thing. Uh, but it's, it's pretty clear. It, it, it is actually equipped with a six-speed manual transmission. Yeah, that was the weird part. And I think Jalopnik actually picked up on it, too, because there had been a release of the, uh, like a, a cutaway image that showed the powertrain layout. Um, and they were like, "Wait a minute! Why is there a transmission in there?" <laughs> like the- yeah, well, the thing—the thing they talked about with this, you know, is you basically only use the clutch uh, to shift gears, and then when you're out on the trail, because an electric motor makes its peak torque from zero RPM, you can pick whatever gear you want, and then you don't have to touch the clutch again. You you just crawl through, you know, at zero speed. And one of the one of the specs that they mentioned was that you can you can crawl so slowly with this thing that you can go about five feet in one minute, which is crazy. <laughs> I mean that's that's how slow this thing can I crawl have, just by, I have days just by like modulating that, yeah. the accelerator pedal. Yeah. We we look sometimes it's hard to get out of bed. Actual production reality is like do you think that they would build because it seems like it's easy enough too to just retrofit an electric motor to the existing rest of the powertrain, but that's not 
the most cost-effective way to do it. I, I'm questioning whether they would actually build it that way if they were to build it as a retrofit no, kit or something. Mo fine. Mo but. Yeah, most most likely um, when a production Wrangler battery electric does arrive, it will be without a transmission or you know just with a single speed reduction gearbox. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if they do if they did use a two speed transfer case. You know, because for Wrangler. You want that, that that those lows those you know really low crawl ratios and that you know that that's something you need when you're crawling through you know over boulders and through uh, through trails. So they would probably you know maybe keep a two speed transfer case with a, a four wheel drive low range, but probably without the um, the transmission in there. Actually, just looking through the uh, through the press release, which uh, was only just released. The four battery packs uh, total up to 70 kilowatt hours, and it's running on an 800 volt electrical system. And one of the things that Jeep is doing right now is they are actually installing solar powered EV chargers at a variety of trails, popular trails where Jeep uh, Jeep owners often go, uh, including the Rubicon Trail in California, uh, as well as out in Moab, to enable owners of the 4xe to go there, you know, charge up before they. Uh, before they head out on the trail and you know then they'll have you know about 20 odd miles of electric driving capability so they can be out on the trail with zero emissions and you know be really quiet which is i think a really cool thing to do and actually rivian also just announced that they are building out uh, an ev charging network uh they're at rivian adventure network i think they're calling it and putting dc fast chargers at uh, locations you know where people are going to you know expected to go off-roading with rivian trucks uh and they'll be building out that network over the next two years so i think we're, we're going to see a lot more of this you know people trying to be you know have a a little bit lighter footprint on the environment when they're doing their outdoor adventuring right don't drive through water not because they're electric but because you churn up the habitat stop yeah. doing that stop forwarding streams um I don't know. I I uh, I do one of these days intend to spend more time off road with a proper off road vehicle doing proper off roading, which is um, here in heavily more heavily regulated Massachusetts. Not exactly a legal thing you can do. Um, you can't just go off on the trails. Here in Northern Michigan, you can do that. Yeah, you can't can't do that in in Massachusetts. Like the the uh, the thing that everybody says because we've talked about this among fellow car riders. I'm like, hey, where do you take your four by fours to really try them out? And and it's usually along power lines. And uh, the trick is always like, don't get caught. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So I'm a little hesitant to go into somebody else's right of way with a vehicle that also belongs to somebody else and then potentially get stuck in need of rescue. So, uh, yeah, that could be a problem. Yeah. That's my story. So with solar chargers at trails, um, that's great if there's enough battery storage capacity to, well, and that's, that's one them. of the things they'll be doing is putting in battery storage, stationary battery storage there to enable higher power charging. Cause you're not, you're not going to be able to get high power charging just off the solar panels. Of course, with a standby, diesel generator just in case um i don't know what rivian's <laughs> plan is um jeep is not going to be doing that i don't think I, they're, I'm, they're, just, yeah. or they're just solar just solar at all with no sort of grid tied backup or anything like that that's uh, interesting as well. i think it depends on on where they are yeah i mean you know a lot of these places there there isn't power to to hook up that's true and we don't need to create 
more of a disaster bringing power into those places. So it, it's interesting. I that actually is something I'm I'm probably uh, equally interested in as the cars. It's just what are you going to do with that that charging infrastructure that you set up with with solar alone? Because um, it's great, but when you're trying to charge a lot of cars real quick at 800 volts, like that, that's a lot of capacity. So that's, well, and this is this is the thing we're going to see everywhere uh, increasingly with uh, chargers. As we move, try to move more and more of the charging infrastructure to renewable sources, and also as we're getting higher power charging, you know the the challenge with doing high power DC fast charging is that that's a, a big strain on the grid. There's actually more than enough generating capacity in the U.S. to support going completely electric. The problem is the distribution and getting it. You know, at the times when you want it and getting enough of it, at, you know, in one quick shot, you know, if you're going to, if you're doing 350 or even higher, 350 kilowatt or even higher power charging, uh, like as we get into uh, electrifying trucks, they're working on megawatt charging systems for trucks that requires a lot of power coming in. Most places don't necessarily have that ability to support that, you know, on a consistent basis. So we are going to see all of these chargers increasingly being equipped with batteries that can be charged at a lower rate. So you don't, you don't have to do as much capacity upgrade on the grid feeding that chargers charging station. Yeah. You can charge it at a lower rate and then pull it out quickly when you need it to charge a vehicle. Yeah. Cause if there's one thing that uh, public utilities or, or utility companies, not necessarily public, um, love to do it's uh, under maintain their infrastructure. So when you start, <laughs> when you start to use it to charge cars, that's great. That's nice strain on stuff that's like hasn't been touched in sixty years, and then starts fires. Yeah, um, especially in California. Yeah, we got one more story uh, related to EVs. Uh, last Monday, Volkswagen had their first Power Day, which is their equivalent of uh, Tesla's Battery Day that they had last fall. And they made some interesting announcements, and this is a lot of it is consistent both with what Tesla has announced, but also what some other automakers are doing. And when we started getting into modern EVs a decade ago, aside from Tesla, but even Tesla at the time, you know, um, automakers weren't pursuing the idea of building their own battery manufacturing capacity. This is something that they were largely doing um, in conjunction with suppliers because first of all, you know, at, at the beginning, you know, volumes weren't enough to justify building their own batteries, you know, battery production. Uh, they also didn't know enough about the technology at the time. They mostly worked with companies like LG Chem and Panasonic and Samsung and CATL and SK Innovation and had them build the cells for them. But now as we're Getting into this decade, the volume of EVs being sold every year is growing. Automakers increasingly are recognizing that both uh, motors and batteries need to be one of their core competencies, just like internal combustions and transmissions have been in the past. And as they get away from building engines and designing new engines and transmissions, they're shifting to batteries and motors. They are increasingly uh, bringing the battery production in-house. GM last year announced their Altium battery system, their joint venture with LG Chem to produce lithium-ion cells. The first plant's going up in Ohio right now. They're planning for a second plant probably in, in Tennessee. Ford has recently talked about, you know, 
starting to do their own in-house cell production instead of relying on suppliers. And uh, for Volkswagen, they have at their power day announced that they were going to start producing their own cells as well. They currently buy cells from all those major suppliers from CATL, Samsung, SK Innovation, and LG Chem. They will be starting to produce their own cells. They've got a plant going up in uh, northern Sweden, in Skelleftia, Sweden, which is going to be the first. But uh, over the course of, by 2030, they plan to build six cell production facilities just in Europe with a total of 240 gigawatt hours a year of cell capacity. And that (laughs) is a lot. Um, certainly a lot compared to what we have but, right now in the U S but it's, right what now. was it you were telling me or before we started the show, that's less than a quarter of what's actually needed for just the yeah. U S like sales volume. Yeah. So for the U S you know, if we get back to 17 million vehicles a year, uh, annual sales right now, we have about 40 gigawatt hours of cell production capacity. Most of that, about 35 is with uh, Tesla and Panasonic and Nevada. And uh, most of the rest is LG Chem at a plant here in, in Michigan. But if we want to build 17 million EVs a year in the U.S., we're going to need somewhere between one and one and a half terawatt hours. So that's about 40 times the capacity we have now. I was off by like an exponential factor. Look at that. Me and the math. Don't get along. Yeah. So Volkswagen's doing the same in Europe. You know, they're going to be at 240. That'll cover a lot of their own internal production needs uh, for Europe. But, you know, then there's also China. And North America and other parts of the world. So the the big thing this decade is going to be building battery cell manufacturing facilities and also recycling. Because if you're going to build that many batteries, you're going to need a hell of a lot more raw materials than we have available right now in terms of you know capacity for that. One of the other big things they talked about was recycling. The raw materials right now represent the the bulk, you know, more than two thirds of the cost of a cell. Uh, and that's, you know, things like the lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt. VW uh, already has a pilot plant up and running in Germany that's doing uh, recycling. And there's a cool video that I'll include a link to uh, in the uh, in the show notes that shows um, they've got this giant shredder. And they actually take complete battery modules, <clears throat> drop them in the shredder, and it shreds them into these little pieces. And then there's a whole process it goes through to extract all the raw materials, to separate all the raw materials again. And they think they can get to 95% recovery of the raw materials that they can then put back into production of new cells. That sounds energy intensive. And that's sort of my, um, that's where my skepticism sets in a little bit. Uh, Just that, like the idea of recycling, you know, we've been sold the idea of plastics recycling, which is mostly nonsense um, and and was from the get-go. And that's sort of now coming more to light is is like yeah you can kind of recycle plastic but it costs so much on the energy input that it's it's actually not uh not efficient and not really viable um i wonder if that's the same thing they're going to run into it seems like battery materials and the electrolytes and all that are are so much more valuable um that it's it's not uh a ruse they actually need to recycle the stuff but i I don't know uh maybe i'm I'm, yeah and and that is is absolutely a challenge that needs to be overcome they they think they can do it uh it's you know given the cost of these materials it it is you know they are going to have to recycle somehow um they you know they've developed processes that they think can make it economically viable um and the the other aspect of this as well uh, or you know other other parts of this you know they they've got this 
the, during the presentation, they talked about the circular economy, you know, of, you know, from the initial product going through the whole life cycle and then recirculating as much of that back into that process, continuing that process uh, going forward. So, you know, from cell production, you know, they have first life use in the vehicles when the capacity drops to a point where it's no longer useful in a vehicle, reusing that for second life. And we talked before about, um, you know, putting batteries, stationary batteries at charging stations. This is one of the, the big applications that's going to be needed for those second life batteries. Once you take those modules out of a car, you know, you can, they can still be very useful sitting next to a charger or for other types of stationary storage applications. Finally, when it's done there, then going through that recycling and, and starting the whole process again. And then the other thing that uh, VW committed to doing is installing 18,000 new DC fast chargers in Europe over the next several years. So, you know, they are really diving all in into the whole electric strategy uh, over the next uh, the next next decade. Well, and the ID4 has been making the rounds as well. People are starting to see them and get up and close with them. That's changing opinions as well, just seeing the the design and the quality and the uh the way those have been put together, I've seen a lot of positive uh, reports on on Volkswagen's EV efforts after they <laughs> they nearly killed us all with diesel, which is not yeah. not true. But um, we really need that charging infrastructure here. Everybody has a pretty viable EV, has a pretty good EV now. Charging, on the other hand, is you st- you ha- it's not as easy as going to a gas station, like Rebecca said. You know, you still need to to plan it out and to take a a more active role in that, which is fine at this stage of EV adoption because you're a believer when you buy an EV right now. So you're willing to do that work, but getting it to be as convenient or as easy as a gas station is we're not there yet. And so hopefully they, I know Volkswagen has electrify America. Hopefully they continue to add charging infrastructure here. Um, That's not like some level two charger tucked around the corner of some building you can't find that that is something that uh that we will see a lot more expansion of is the the charging infrastructure and it, it is a problem right now you know and, it, and it's a classic example of the william gibson line you know the future is already here it's just not evenly distributed yeah that's true um, that's a good line know, <laughs> depending on where you go charging can either be no problem at all or it can be a huge problem yeah and you know if we want evs to be ubiquitous we have to make it not a problem at all um, you know, especially for people in cities. And this is one of the things that, that VW talked about, you know, is making sure that, uh, that you can support EV adoption by people living in urban areas um, where a lot of people don't live in single family homes with a garage. Right. You know, that they, they are going to have to rely on public charging. And, you know, things like, you know, Rivian's announcement of, you know, putting in 10,000 chargers, um, you know, will help. Although, one thing uh, I'm going to be writing a blog post about this uh, for my company blog. You know, one of the the unfortunate things about the Rivian announcement is that their DC fast chargers are going to be exclusively for Rivian owners, which I think is a terrible idea. I thought that they were going to be compatible with other vehicles. As, as far as, well. as I know, they are compatible. They're using CCS connectors, but. Um, they just aren't going to allow other owners of other vehicles to charge at their DC fast chargers, yeah. which I think is stupid. I, I think, you know, if they want to give free charging or discounted charging to their owners, fine. But I think, you know, if they if they really want to help the adoption of EVs overall, then 
you know, I think that they need to make their, I think everybody needs to make their charging networks open to every, everybody. Wait, 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 these are, these are startup companies, right? And they're building charging infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Why would you not turn that into a revenue stream? I know. <laughs> like, exactly. They don't have that's, any, that's re they point. are revenue negative. They don't have any, they're not making money. Um, they're financed by companies that are like, by like people Amazon. That, yeah. They're just, they're, they're just losing money in a calculated bet that they will eventually make money. Don't you want to try to eventually make money faster? Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can't argue with that. Um, I, I mean, you know, the, the urban charging is an issue uh, for renters and just for how cars are used and stored in cities. That's something that's got to get worked out. And that's really the most common point of pain and contention that comes up when we talk about this stuff. And it's always like, well, yeah, how am I going to how I'm going to charge a car in the city? I live in an apartment and my car isn't near me. It's a mile away or whatever. And we need to make sure that we're moving like parallel paths you can't over perfect before you launch uh the cars are viable the charging is viable it doesn't mean that it's perfect but it means you should get it out there so that people can experience it and you can fine-tune it you know uh, we i've been a part of projects that you wind up just going around in circles for like years i i, I swear to god i rewrote the same website three or four times <laughs> <laughs> over the course of five years and it never launched because it was just you're trying to just do too much and make it too perfect before it launches and it's never going to be perfect so go out there with like the the idea of being humble and you know here's how we thought it should be find the ways it needs to to change and evolve while people start to use it like you're just going to get that much further down the road um you know, because right now EVs are great for people in the suburbs who do the normal, like one person in a car commute to a city kind of thing. But that that's a really crappy use for any car, no matter how it's propelled versus, um, you know, ways to make mobility possible. So I like the, the greater focus if you zoom out a little bit on mobility. And um, I really want them to solve that urban charging problem. And I haven't seen anything that's exciting yet. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing some interesting things in Europe. Uh, BMW has done some stuff with uh, some pilots with using uh, light poles, street side light poles, yeah. and installing chargers in there within the poles because they already have power, uh, you know, making that available to people, you know, for curbside parking, uh, things like that, you know, or, you know, where we have parking meters today, you know, install chargers, you know, at those at those positions. But uh, a lot more needs to be done. And, you know, part of it is, you know, part of it that'll help is, you know, making making faster charging more accessible and um, available or, or affordable. But uh, there's there's still a lot that needs to happen to really uh, make the, the switch to EVs viable. Yeah. Well, you know, the common complaint, too, is going to be well, who's going to pay for it. And we can. We can pay for it. Yeah. We already subsidize our highways. Uh, and the idea that any other competing system has to operate at a, at a profit or break even is what has hamstrung, uh, transit across the nation as well. Um, one of the things there's a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Um, but this is an investment we can, we can, we can make. And, you know, it, it doesn't all have to be paid for by tax dollars. 
you know, there's, oh, there's no. plenty of private companies yeah. that are interested in getting into this business. But what, you know, what we need to do is find ways, I think, to make it easier, uh, you know, to look at the, the permitting processes and things like that, make it easier for infrastructure to be installed and make it accessible to people. Yeah. So let's go. Let's do it. We'll, All right. <laughs> we'll, we'll agitate for it. Yes, I'm good at agitation. <laughs> Uh, all right. Do we have any questions, or are we just done with the show at this point? Uh, why don't we wrap it up for this week and get back to questions next week? Okay, and maybe Nicole will be with us next week. Maybe. I don't know if Hopefully. she survives uh, the trip. I'm not sure when she's getting back, but we'll, we'll see. She either, she'll either be with us next week or the week after. All so. right. And that, on that note, uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and we will catch you next time. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Wheelbearings. Hey, we love to listen to our listeners, too. Drop us an email to feedback at wheelbearings.media with your thoughts, questions, or conversation starters. That's feedback at wheelbearings.media. You can also find us on Twitter at wheelbearingscast. Don't use any vowels except for the A in cast. So that's W-H-L-B-R-N-G-S cast. Thanks again. We hope to hear from you soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.